This week's TribCast is sponsored by Curry. Curry is like Uber for construction material delivery. We're here for distributors and contractors who need to move material fast. For hot shots and routes nationwide, think Curry. For more information, visit CURRI.com. And the Texas State University System is Texas's first university system, with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. Visit TSUS.edu for more. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for February 4th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics. And this week we are going to talk about the winter storm that passed through Texas and the challenges surrounding Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star at the border. I'm joined by energy and economy reporter Mitchell Furman. Hey there. Hey, Mitchell. And uh, politics reporter James Bodegon. Hello. Hey, thanks for y'all joining us. Uh, all right, Mitchell, I want to start with you. Here we are. It is 930 on Friday. We have passed the period where uh, the time, I guess, when we thought that we would reach peak energy demand during this cold snap that went through Texas. And I guess maybe my first question for you is, uh, can we all exhale? You know, the power has not gone out, the grid, you know, the power hasn't gone out for us. It hasn't gone out for the vast majority of Texans. The grid has held its own. Are we out of the, what, out of the cold, I guess? Is that the, the term I'm looking for? Or I think we're mostly in the clear. Uh, you know, the, it's still cold uh, across much of the state. So I, I, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't, I don't want to go that far quite yet. Um, but I, I just talked to a couple, uh, people who are on this ERCOT, uh, call this morning, they, ERCOT's been having these calls every morning this week with, you know, companies in the, in the system. And yeah, they, they, they think it were probably good at this point. Um, ERCOT, you know, vastly over projected the demand on on the grid than than we ended up seeing this morning. Yeah, I mean, basically, what they were saying a couple of days ago was that we might see a peak energy demand this week that surpassed the demand of last year's storm, when of course millions of Texans were without power for days. What happened? Did, did it not get as cold? Was that just being, you know, were they trying to kind of prepare for the worst, hope for the best? What do we have any sense as to why we didn't reach that peak that we thought we might? Yeah, I think it, I think it's uh, they just operated conservatively. And this was probably their most extreme model. ERCOT uses several different they get several different models. And uh, from what I understand, this was probably their most extreme model for projections and uh you know yeah so so i think that's that's basically what it comes down to is they just they they've been operating conservatively you know since summer really and this kind of follows that track very good well okay so i know that it will probably take some time to kind of parse through what happened here you know uh, what the temperatures looked like this was of course a pretty typical kind of winter blasts you know we see these in texas most years if not every year um it was definitely far from the you know 
temperatures in the single digits or even negatives in some of the state's biggest cities and the sustained length of that freezing weather that we saw in 2021. So, I mean, I think one thing we should, of course, note is that these were not the same storm, right? Um, not even close. But what do we, what should we take away from this? I mean, you know, I'd, should we, should we be tapping, you know, patting the legislature and Greg Abbott on the back for fixing our grid issues? Is it too soon to say that? Um, you know, what, what have we learned from this storm, I guess? It got to 30 degrees here in Houston where I'm based. It didn't get particularly cold many places in Texas. The grid should not have been in question for this weather. This was, that's the bare minimum. This is bare minimum winter weather in Texas. Uh, and in other parts of the country, this is like, you know, t-shirt weather for some people. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this was not that cold. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, it's the, the leaders of Texas were, were operating cautiously, uh, which was a, a, a stark difference from last year when they basically didn't do anything before the weather hit. Mm -hmm. And Texans had no clue they were going to be in the dark for days and freezing temperatures. But, uh, you know, they, they were they were uh, trying to be out in front of it this week. But at the end of the day, demand on the grid did not even reach what demand on the grid was at its peak last year. Yeah. And despite, you know, the, the year of growth we have seen, you know, you always kind of see those peaks continue to climb as population grows and Bitcoin miners come to Texas and all of the other things that kind of uh, put demand on the grid. You know, it was it was funny to have experienced this because I think we all kind of our brains were telling us, you know, okay, this isn't as bad. Like this is not the 2021 winter storm. But our hearts were all, you know, beating a little bit faster just because we all remembered how terrible that week was last year. And, you know, you saw the pictures, the images of people rushing to HEB and loading up with, you know, all those things or buying generators or all the other things we did. But then you also had Governor Abbott, you know, coming on and saying, uh, Mitchell, you can probably tell me what his exact quote was, but, you know, something along the lines of we can't guarantee, guarantee there won't be a load shed event, which basically means we can't guarantee there won't be at least rolling blackouts during the storm. I mean, you definitely could feel the like palpable fear, concern coming from, you know, regular Texans, but I think also a little bit of a sense of, you know, okay, what's gonna happen here from the, the state officials as well? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, uh, I, I think anxiety for state leaders heading into this, uh, this event, just because it, I mean, they could not, I, I think it would just be a, a really tough look to have there be widespread uh, power outages again. Uh, yeah, the governor definitely was was cautious in his uh, in his wording uh, earlier this week, uh, you know, about the storm. He could, he said he could not guarantee that there wouldn't be power outages and, uh, you know, load shed event for in case like anyone is unclear means the power is out. Um, I know there there is some there's some <laughs> argument about about that, um, especially from the governor's office. Uh, but you know, as they tried to do cleanup duty. Uh, but you know, no, I, I at the end of the day, there were about seventy thousand Texas customers probably without power yesterday. I think at its at the at the highest point. Um, it, you know, those were repaired fairly quickly, and that's a that's a good sign. 
yeah Mitchell, you know. can you can you Mitchell just just on the load shed thing can you just like uh like put some light on that I mean what exactly does it mean like because the governor's office and his communications team did contend that but just just for the for the listeners also I mean the the governor's office also contends whether the border wall is a border barrier or it's a border fence or it's a or whether a cement barrier is a wall or not um you know so so you know it is a lot of semantics but I guess for for load shed I mean what does that actually mean for the average person like that, that doesn't understand that yeah, shedding load me and, and our colleague Ross Ramsey, I think, laid this out really well in his column yesterday, I want to say, or, or in recent days. Uh, um, shedding load means like you're you're taking off some some power demand from the grid in order to like preserve it. Right. So that means you're 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 cutting off power to some amount of of people, whether that's businesses like large industrial businesses or whether that's residential residences in certain certain blocks, uh, you know, ERCOT has ERCOT has very specific um, and and in depth kind of models for how they shed for how they shed load, and that goes through the transmission companies like Encore, AEP Texas, Centerpoint, and they're the ones who who actually do the the cutting of 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 the power. And then those are meant to be like Matthew said, rolling blackouts. That's essentially um, what that can mean. Of course, they didn't really in practice when they did load shedding in 2021, they didn't turn out to be rolling blackouts. They were basically <laughs> right. just everyone sitting in the cold darkness of their house. Yeah, so. load shedding, basically load shed is that really bad thing that happened last February when millions of people lost power for days. Yeah, exactly. All so, right. So, so you decide, listeners, you decide whether <laughs> it was uh, what it was there. Yeah, you know, you decide, but James, uh, I would not be surprised if we see, I mean, I already saw a little bit of it this morning, uh, our former House Speaker, uh, Dennis Bonin, uh, uh, going on Twitter and, you know, basically being like, look at all the media and all the people who were, you know, panicking about the state of the power grid and like, who's laughing now, you know, I think we well, haven't that's nonsense. Really... That's, that's nonsense. Nobody is laughing I mean, and nobody should be laughing, you know, because as as Mitch said, I mean, this is the bare minimum. You know, it didn't get as cold as it got last year, which is another thing that we have to really, really emphasize. You know, it wasn't the same gravity of a winter weather. But also we live in a first world country, you know, and we also live in the energy capital of the U.S. And it shouldn't be a victory and nobody should be saying who's laughing now. Uh, about the lights staying on. I mean, it's just, it's the opposite of what we were talking about last year, where we were all livid and angry and horrified that the lights went off in the state, which is the energy capital of the country. Some might, some people might argue that it's the energy capital of the world, but you know, it's it's not, nothing to celebrate. And I did see I did see some commentators on social media saying, you know, about Democrats, because Democrats really have made the grid a huge issue. And we've, we've written about that, including uh, Beto O'Rourke and Mike Collier. And, and I did see some political commentators from the right saying, well, you know, basically, you're a really bad person if you're cheering for the lights to go off for political gain. I, I don't think anybody ever actually said that, although obviously there would be political benefit. Um, but it, it just is also, I mean, on the converse, you know, like conversely, nobody should be celebrating that the that the lights are staying on because it's like 
the bare minimum. And if you are the person in charge who is now saying, well, haha, the light stayed on and I told you so, that's not really a great place to be coming from, right? Because that should be the status quo that the, that the lights turn on. And if you're the person sort of putting other people in a position to benefit politically from the lights going off, it's just a pretty perverse way to one, look at it in a pretty perverse like situation to, to be in, you know, it, it just kind of, it, it does kind of befuddle the mind a little bit. I mean, having working electricity is a basic necessity of modern life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be in question whether we're going to right. have. Well, you know, you know, set the set the expectations low, and then you'll be uh, you'll be in good shape when you uh, when you surpass them. I guess. Yeah, I should you know I should clean up my Dennis Bonin quote here. What he said was, "Can we stop the fear mongering and clickbait headlines now? Texas, the grid is performing." You know. Well, again, again, though, again, though, you know, it, it, it is a very different situation than it was last year. And the lead up to it was also a very different situation. Absolutely. You know, when, when you were talking about, you know, why, why did the lights stay on and why was the situation so different? You know, I, 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 I stopped myself from making the joke, which I will make now, of course, <laughs> that, that it was it because, you know, all people, Texans, disconnected their new appliances that they had gotten in Christmas and only used once from that famous ERCOT tweet, you know, mm -hmm. it was a very different response from state officials. You know, ERCOT wasn't sending sassy tweets. They were ahead of it. They were having press conferences. The governor has had press conferences, I think every day uh, leading into it and every day of the winter storm, like they are taking it very seriously. Also, Texans are taking it very seriously and also the press. I mean, that's got to be said. We, we sort of missed it like ahead of time. I, I, I don't know. You know, I wasn't here at the Texas Tribune, but I wasn't necessarily concerned about it. And then it happened. And I think we were caught flat footed. And so everybody approached it very, very differently from where we were last year. And part of that was was that trauma, you know. And so when people criticized, hey, fear mongering and this and that. I, I don't think it's it's too much to say that there was fear and there was trauma. I mean, nobody was creating that fear. Nobody was creating that trauma. That trauma was created because of the events of last February and people running to HEB to get water, to get you know canned food. Those are serious concerns. It's, it's not fear mongering brought up by the press or anybody else. Those are like, because literally millions of Texans went through this. Yeah, well, absolutely. And the governor, you know, as we noted, the governor himself said he couldn't guarantee that we wouldn't need a load shedding event this th during this storm. So, right. um, you know, to pretend like we were kind of stirring up, you know, fear or trying to generate clicks by hyping up this storm to be bigger than it was, um, you know, I don't, I don't think is a, is a, it, it, I think and, it and is. No, a bit and nobody's accusing the governor or, or TDEM, the, the Department of Emergency Management, of fear mongering, they were sending out the same information that we were sending out about how to have a survival kit, having water, you know, having a plan for everything. Nobody's accusing them, not from the right, um, you know. And and so I just think that there has to be a distinction there between saying, "Hey, fear mongering," and like actual preparation for what people feared could happen because it had happened one year ago. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I will note uh, the, <laughs> I, I did get a bit of a chuckle from in the run up to the event, uh, Governor Abbott putting his, his campaign, putting out a press release, uh, about Beto O'Rourke's keeping the lights on tour. And he, he, he dubbed it the praying the lights go out tour. 
you know, and kind of trying to suggest that, you know, uh, Beto is kind of hoping for the worst here for because of the campaign. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I, I doubt O'Rourke would say that he was, you know, hoping that Texas went through what they will go through uh, last year again. But, you know, I do wonder, do you think that this takes a little bit of the wind out of the case that Democrats and also some of Greg Abbott's primary opponents have been hoping to make against him, you know, in the, the we're now 10 days before early voting starts, I believe, about how this was such a failure of the administration of his, you know, his time in office that, that the grid was in this shape, you know, can, can Abbott kind of beat back those criticisms a little bit more easily now? Well, I think it's a complicated situation because like the only, you know, again, to the sort of perverse situation that we are in as Texans, the only way that this could have gone really one way or another if things had gone south and like the grid had crashed mm -hmm. and then everything's on on Abbott right yeah. and O'Rourke can come in and Huffines and West can come in and say well he, he didn't fix the grid you know I think in this situation as we've been discussing and I'm sure the governor would like to say hey it kept up we I said everything was fixed and it is fixed you know but it's not a it's not a clean hit you know I mean thousands of people were without power for whatever reasons but you know the the Texas electorate sometimes isn't willing to dig into like you know was it because my you know power lines were down or no they're going to say the lights were off and the lights were off and that's it you didn't fix it so it's not a clean hit um I think what happens is maybe Abbott says yeah we've got more work to do but we you know held up fine and so let's move on here i think the same thing for democrats you know it, it is sort of like well let's move on to the next thing uh because this clear this clearly it, it held up and so it's you sort of are where you are and this was the point that i think we had made in some of our stories that democrats have to have other issues to go off of yeah. you know because hopefully and thankfully the lights have stayed on um, and so when that doesn't happen and you don't have that as your hit, like what else are you going to talk about to voters who may be interested in exploring an alternative? And that's what I think they have to be considering from a political sense. Just a, a quick point on the, the governor and, and a lot of the, the leaders were talking about local power outages, right? Mm -hmm. And they were really trying to be <clears throat> intentional about their language in these are, these are not grid management issues right? Like that's a, ice on a line or a tree falling. Are power lines not part of the power grid? I, I mean, Centerpoint, Encore, AEP Texas, I mean, these companies are very much, I mean, they're transmission and distribution companies. Like they're, I mean, they, a lot, they testified after the storm. They are very much involved in, in the ERCOT calls. I, I just, I understand uh, what they're saying is these are these are local outages, but this is all part of the grid system. Yeah, it doesn't matter. No one's going to be point. like, oh, well, I'm in the in the dark for for a day, but uh, you know, it's a local outage, so it's not as bad, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just one quick political question: if this if things did go poorly with the grid, would that even mean anything for Abbott? Well, of course, it's it's impossible to it's impossible to know that, yeah. right? Uh, but I think a lot of the onus uh, would have been. I mean, whenever there's a disaster like that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same situation we were in February. And if it had happened right now in February, a month before the primaries, two weeks before 
early voting, yeah, I think it I think it would have been disaster for any not not just for the governor, but for any incumbent in office who was who was tasked with fixing the grid. Again, impossible to tell, but I think the timing would have been terrible, sort of like Henry Cuellar's FBI raid ahead of his (laughs) primary election. Yeah, short of like an FBI raid. And really, honestly, maybe even including an FBI raid, because, you know, (laughs) recent history seems to indicate that getting indicted does not do much, you know, damage to you politically. Um, I I would I I would argue it was about could have been about the worst possible thing to happen to Abbott. You know, would that have meant that he would have lost? Maybe not. Probably not. I mean, you know, this is a, a someone who holds a pretty strong lead in the primary and, you know, 2022 is looking to be a pretty strong year for Republicans. It's a long way away from November. But I think if you could, if you were to put like a, on a thing, a list of things Greg Abbott doesn't want to happen, you know, rolling blackouts or anything like that uh, two weeks before voting started uh, would probably be pretty high up there on that list, I would assume. All right, well, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Texas Farm Bureau. Looking for ag information and resources? Visit Texas Farm Bureau's Small Farm and Ranch Resources page at txfb.us slash smallfarm. And philanthropy advocates work to advance education policy, cradle to career, is more important than ever. Learn more at philanthropyadvocates.org. Okay, so speaking of moving on to other issues, there is another big issue that Governor Greg Abbott's political opponents have been hitting him on uh, quite a bit lately. And this one, I think uh, there is also a lot of kind of room for criticism. James, you and our partners at the Military Times had a a pretty blockbuster story this week about the problems facing the Texas National Guard in Operation Lone Star, Governor Greg Abbott's deployment of state resources to the border, which includes um, what was described in the story is basically the most extensive, biggest uh, state deployment of National Guard resources, you know, in Texas history, essentially. Tell us a little bit of- And country history. In in the US US history, history. right, right. Um, Tell us a little bit about, give us the high points of that story and, and kind of what you guys unearthed or, or illuminated. Yeah. So as we all know, everything's bigger in Texas, including our state active duty <laughs> missions and the problems that there are with those uh, state active duty missions. Uh, basically, one thing that maybe civilians have to know, civilians like myself, I did not serve in the military, um, but the National Guard is made up of like part-time uh, part-time service members. They, mm-hmm. they have civilian jobs just like you and me. They've got families, they've got parents, they've got kiddos that they've got to take care of. They've got businesses, right? Um, and so this was, as we said, the biggest state active duty mission in U.S. history. It's never been done um, at this scale before. And particularly the, the surge that happened in fall has never been done like this before. And that led to many, many problems with living conditions, people saying they were living in like very deplorable living conditions, paycheck issues, people not getting their pay for months, getting it late or not getting the right amounts. Um, and then there's also been... Um, issues with, you know, protective equipment that they need to be out there, uh, bulletproof vest or the plates for those vests, um, cold weather gear right now that we're going through a weather storm, um, you know, even ammunition and, and access to firearms has, has been questioned there. 
Um, and it's been a, a broad array of issues. Those have been reported on for the last couple of months by our partners at the Army Times, by ourselves and other news outlets. But what we really got at in this story was that a lot of these issues were preventable because we had seen these issues during a uh, the 2017 active duty mission for Hurricane Harvey, which at that point was the biggest state active duty uh, mission that had ever happened. I think there was something like 17,000 troops. And they got, you know, uh, pay, pay issues and some of these things that we're talking about now. But that was a normal state active duty mission, you know, very short, very brief for a, you know, natural disaster relief kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that you're used to seeing the National Guard for, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, uh, COVID-19, where you're just sort of helping out and on the logistical side. This is a very different deal that we have here in Operation Lone Star. Some of these people are up, up there too, uh, are out there for up to a, a year on their deployment. And so they didn't have the time to, you know, set their affairs in order, um, even really give notice at work or to their families. Of the more than 30 people that we spoke to, uh, none of them had more than two weeks notice. Some of them have had as little as 72 hours notice. And 72 hours notice is not a whole lot of time to get your life together before going down to the border. Um, you know, one of the first people uh, that we write about in the story had $60,000 in contracts for a small business that just dried up and are completely gone. And to make matters worse for that person, you know, three weeks after he got deployed, he's right back at home. It, all of that for what? And I think that's the main question. Not only are troops and service members upset that there was this rush to get down there for no real reason. But now that they've been there for months, there still is no real clear mission. I mean, the stated political reason by uh, Governor Abbott and other officials is that they're there to curb um, human smuggling and drug trafficking. But it's unclear what role National Guard service members are even having or if they're actually effectuating a positive change. The Texas Military Department has really gone on the offensive and says, you know, we've contributed vastly to this pro or to, to solving this problem. They're touting all these statistics. You know, service members that we're talking to are saying we're, we're not really participating in all that stuff. Most of the time, we're just kind of staring out at nothing and not doing a whole lot of action. And so they're sort of questioning why they're down there. There's no clear mission. Um, and it's been difficult for them. And I think the hardest part of this, too, is that Across the board, when you look at polling, uh, the hardest part for Governor Abbott and people who are supportive of this or who like back this is that across polling, uh, service members are among the most popular um, category of people that people support. You know, um, there's a high respect for the military. When you put them in situations like this where they ostensibly um, are chasing migrants, arresting migrants, put them in a situation where they could get hurt or they could be hurting people that is, you know, very, very political, that harms the uh, opinion that people have of the military. And that's why they've, you know, other governors and presidents have really avoided getting them involved in that kind of stuff. Um, and again, that's a new thing that's happening here in Operation Lone Star. And I think people are just at least the service members we talk to and a lot of their families, they're, they're kind of just sick of it. Yeah, you know, uh, there were a couple of things that really stood out. Uh, there were many things that really stood out to me in that story. We, we quoted a National Guard general from another state who basically said there's no conceit. He didn't basically said this is a direct quote. 
There's no conceivable way that this could have gone smoothly. There's no way. The way that this was rolled out was done so hastily in a manner that is so kind of foreign to the Texas National Guard. You know, y'all, y'all did a really great job of explaining, you know, the different ways that the National Guard is used, right? They're used for, as you mentioned, these kind of local, usually emergency deployments. There's a hurricane, there's flooding, there's, you know, something like that where they kind of need the manpower of the, the National Guard soldiers. They're deployed kind of instantly because or you know, if not instantly, then with very little notice because you don't get much notice when a hurricane comes or a, or a tornado hits or something like that. But then you've also got the more like federal deployments, which is more like you know being called up to war or some kind of more like federal government military action. But those, as was noted in the story, you get, I, I think 120 days notice um, when you're getting called up for those more long-term uh, deployments. And if you, get less than that, then you have the option to turn down the deployment. And in this case, you're, you know, you talked about people getting 72 hours notice, and a lot of them are going to be down there at the border for months, you know, maybe even a year. And uh, it's really kind of completely disrupting their lives. And then to put it on top of that, what you described, right, was the action of people just kind of describing how they're just kind of sitting there, um, you know, often, you know, staring at a lake, I think is one how one National Guard member uh, described it and, and other things like that. You know, the, this sense of like, what, why was I even called for this? And then on top of that, the way they are being kind of taken care of by their, you know, the government that is that they're supposed to be protecting, the, the government of the people that they're supposed to be protecting, you know, the um, storing expensive military equipment in their cars was one thing that detail in there that really stood out. You know, the lack of restroom facilities for female uh, members of the guard um, was really, you know, concerning and stood out. Uh, and and then also the, the way that some of these uh, soldiers are, you know, part of elite or really kind of specialized units. The, there was a little section in the story about the cyber uh, guard unit, right, which is um, supposed to protect the state from, you know, cyber crimes, which is, of course, a big point of vulnerability. And now they are out there kind of, you know, monitoring the border. And they were raising concerns about whether the that unit's capability, both due to attrition from people who are upset about how this is going down and leaving the guard, or others who are kind of occupied by this other mission, there are questions about whether that unit could even be effective if they were needed yeah. due to a cyber deployment. It, it really just kind of leaves you wondering kind of what's the point here? Why yeah. Why did anyone think this was a good idea? And, and one point there too, Matthew, um, about the difference between uh, a state active duty deployment and a federal like deployment is um, not just the notice that you get, but also the difference difference in pay. It's much higher pay if you're on federal orders. And the other nice thing about if you're on federal orders, you get health insurance through the military. You accumulate towards your GI bill, you accumulate towards your military retirement, and you also get deferential pay, which is lacking on state active duty. Um, I think all of those things are actually lacking during state active duty. So you're getting none of the benefits, all of the like crummy parts of being on deployment, of not seeing your family, uh, losing money. But I mean, the loss of income is something that cannot be overstated. I have to, uh, I do have to say that for entry level soldiers and airmen um, and service members, 
some of them may actually get higher pay than they would in their civilian jobs, you know, because the military pays them well at entry level. But once you get to the higher ranks, um, the, the pay is very different. The, the, what jogged my memory was the cyber unit, you know, because cyber people who are, you know, cybersecurity experts are in high demand. They get paid a lot of money. And so when you are sending them off to state active duty, some of these guys, and not just for cyber duty, but that's just the one that stands out because it's such a high demand job in a high demand industry. But these people are losing like thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars a month. Um, and there is no deferential pay like there would be under federal orders. So there's just like a lot of cracks that are beginning to show in this operation. Um, and the sentiment that we got from uh, service members and their families, and these are not people who just hate this mission. I mean, some of them obviously do not agree with the mission. They do not know why they're down there, but some of them actually do agree with the mission and they are in favor of the mission and want to help out and stop or curb the migration issues that we're having at the South Texas border. But even those people are unhappy with the way this has been rolled out. And the thing that has been made very clear is that the state does not have the capacity to successfully achieve this mission just because there are so many issues here like migration and law enforcement uh, that are handled by either the federal level or when you talk about law enforcement it's handled by state troopers or the local county sheriff or the local law enforcement that the service members are just not equipped to handle and without cooperation it's just not going to work and if the federal government is not in co collaboration with the state mission, that's a big part of the reason why a lot of these issues are also arising. James, isn't part of the mission, it's to curb unauthorized migration, right? But also to Correct. to counter like illegal drug, drug trafficking. trafficking. Yeah, right. What, yeah. do we have evidence of any drug trafficking that they've stopped? Because I lived on the border for four years and was a reporter there and most of the drugs that come into America come through, smuggled through trucks and vehicles through ports of entry. And exactly, exactly. And, and uh, Mitch, you know this from living on the border, but I mean, this is just uh, the same old thing. It's a, a political revolving door. You know, when things get tough, you go down to the border and you say illegal immigration and drugs coming through and that's going to rile up the base i think on the republican on the republican side now it's got to be said i mean i'm not i'm not uh, i'm not arguing that there isn't a lot of migration coming in at the southern border i think that has to be said and that's something that is lacking in a lot of the coverage i mean there is a lot of people even at the end of the year i think it was still at 170 160,000 people through the southwestern border but to your point about drugs um, the state officials have um, touted uh, statistics out there about like 100,000 apprehensions um, regarding like migrants or criminals or something like that. And they are touting uh, also drug seizures, particularly fentanyl, uh, which is the new big talking point. Um, a couple of things I'll say about that is that, you know, the statistics that they're touting, uh, I'm unclear if those are like just Operation Lone Star statistics. Um, that have been achieved through or logged through DPS or the National Guard on Operation Lone Star, or if they're just rolling everybody in there from DPS and local, like it, it's unclear how they get those statistics, right? So I will caution that. And the second thing I'll caution is that 
every Republican official running for statewide office that I've seen talk about the border um, has talked about fentanyl. And Governor Abbott has this line about there, you know, we've seized enough fentanyl um, on Operation Lone Star last year to, I think, and you'll have to check me on this, but I think he says to kill every man, woman, and child in, in the country. Um, of course, that's a very disingenuous way to frame that. It takes very little amount of fentanyl to actually um, uh, to kill someone. Um, and of course, people who use fentanyl know that. It's a very powerful drug. Um, but the other thing about fentanyl and really any illegal drug is exactly what you said, Mitch. Most of them are coming through the ports of entry and not around the ports of entry. You know, drug smugglers are very sophisticated in how they get at it. And almost every counter drug expert that I've spoken to in covering this says that just enforcement tactics are not going to fix this issue. There has to be um, there has to be other measures taken. If you're just going to attack the supply side of this, meaning the drug traffickers getting that getting those drugs in here, it's it's not going to work. You have to attack also the demand side, the consumers, the Americans on this side asking for those drugs. Um, and part of that really has to do with you know how we treat people who have substance use. Uh, or who abuse substances. And the state of Texas really has a long way to go on that part and has not invested nearly as much time or money in that as it has on this war on border security. Um, and until they do that, uh, you know, according to every <laughs> counter drug expert that I've spoken to, including some who used to run, you know, border patrol sectors, it's, it's just not, it's just not gonna work. Well, the headline to James, your fantastic story is deplorable conditions, unclear mission, Texas National Guard troops call Abbott's rushed border operation a disaster. I'd, I'd recommend folks who haven't uh, read it yet to check it out on, on our website, texastribune.org. Um, great job um, on the work y'all you're doing and I know there's more to come. Um, and Mitchell, great job with your coverage of the grid. It's been uh, very clear eyed and helpful. I think uh, both of y'all have, have really, um, done a great service to our readers this this week and, and beyond. So, so thanks you all for that. And thank you for joining us on the TripCast today. Um, thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Curry, UT Health School of Public Health, the Texas Farm Bureau, and Philanthropy Advocates. We'll talk to you all next week. You